0: you have your Bibles this morning, I would like to <clears throat> invite you to turn again back to Proverbs chapter 18. Again, we're going to move a, a little bit deeper into this chapter uh, today. This has um, uh, so far been a really good chapter with a, a lot of good solid principles for, for all of us. You know, that's one of the things about the book of Proverbs. It's just continually unearths great truths that uh, we need to have in our life and have in everything that we do. You'll remember last week, just by a quick review, uh, we talked about the verse there that talked about the wounds of a tailbearer, how that they go down deep into the belly, and we talked about how that the tongue uh, is likened to a sword in the Bible. And you remember, I, I gave you a couple of different things that you could study out through the scriptures uh, last week. One of them was the two swords in the Bible, and one of them is the obviously the word of God in Hebrews chapter four. Uh, the other one is man's tongue, as we talked about, and uh, and one is used to build people up. The other one is used to uh, tear people down. And a great analogy, a great study, be a great devotion for somebody that wanted to just, you know, lay out a quick uh, down and out uh, principle that really uh, impacts some things. We talked about the two great aspects of what uh, we waste as God's people. And we talked about how that we waste time uh, and how we waste the money that God gives us, the resources that we have. And then a, another quick little study that I, I told you about as we came through there was uh, about a strong tower. And I told you that there's two different kinds of towers in the Bible that you can study. Uh, one of them represented by the Tower of Babel, which is a tower that is man-made, uh, top may reach unto heaven. And the other one is the uh, strong tower called the Tower of David. Uh, which is based on the Word of God and God giving you the ability to have all of the things that you need uh, to protect you and your family uh, and all the things that are around you. So last week we had a lot of good concepts, as we did the week before, pretty much uh, through the whole chapter of chapter 18. And today I want to read chapter 18, and we're just going to look at three verses today. I try to keep the study in Proverbs localized with things that go together so we don't kind of jump into another uh, concept or theme. The theme in Proverbs is constantly changing as you come down through it, so I try to stay with that. But uh, here's what it says in verse 13, 14, and 15. It says this, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear. The heart of the prudent getteth knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeketh knowledge. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. We, We love you. We thank you, Father, for uh, the Word of God that you provided for us, for the good folks that have come out today. And, Lord, we pray, each one of us looking in our own hearts, we pray the blood of Christ on us today, uh, that we might uh, be forgiven for those things that uh, we've done and the transgressions against man and, and our sin against you. We pray, Father, that uh, you would forgive us now and, and uh, Lord, cleanse us and give us uh, uh, what we need to be able to preach the Word of God, but also for you to receive the Word of God. And we just thank you in all you do for us in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's three, these three verses are really good verses that I think will yield some really good principles to us and we want to look at it. Let's look at verse 13 first. This is a great principle. He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Now... In dealing in circumstances in life, this will be one of the most profound principles found anywhere uh, in the Word of God. It, it, It really is. And it simply means, and we're going to talk about it in depth here, but just to give you the overall understanding of it. It simply means don't form your opinions or answer a matter till you have all the facts involved. And that is so crucial. So many people, you know, we talk about reacting versus responding. And we talk about, you know, all the different scenarios of dealing with people and the things that people get into. When we react to something, it's kind of like a knee-jerk reaction. Somebody says something, we say something back. When we respond, somebody may say something to us or something may happen, but we filter it through the principles of the Word of God and therefore come out with the correct uh, response to it and, and deal with it and deal with it properly. And, uh, you know, in the context here, if you remember our study from last week, uh, it's built around a talebearer, Somebody who ta- takes and spreads rumors and slanders uh, some things about someone else. And rule number one in the context here, before we look at it as it applies across the board, never form an opinion about anybody with information uh, from a person like that. And you're going to have all your life going to be faced with people who uh, are tail bearers. They're people who want to slander people. And uh, they will usually have a personal agenda of why they want to do it. Most of the time it's because they don't want to do what's right with the Lord. And uh, you and I have to be very careful that we don't form an opinion about something that somebody says about somebody without getting all the facts. Bible's very clear where it talks about prove all things. And we have an obligation to prove everything that uh, before we allow ourselves to uh, uh, engage ourselves in it. And, uh, you know, I've told you many, many times that you and I should form our own opinions uh, based on the principles and using the Word of God with, with what we know. And also, you know, along with that, in a, in a general sense of dealing with our everyday life, you know, uh, it also is dealing with uh, biblical principles and uh, in, uh, in dealing with people. And again, it's real simple. The thing that I have learned years and years ago, and when you get into dealing with people's problems the thing that you want to learn uh, you know there'll be a husband come in and talk about his wife there'll be a wife come in and talk about his husband there'll be some Christian come in and talk about some other Christian that they're struggling with it's 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 just the way it is and you know in a perfect world everybody would do what the Word of God says but obviously we don't live in a perfect world so you're going to have those issues and the thing that you want to follow and the thing you never want to forget is simply this is that there are there are two sides to every story you want to remember that And in dealing with people, uh, one of the things that you really got to understand that when you start talking with somebody who's got an issue with somebody or an issue with themselves or uh, somebody who is dealing with something in their life, you're going to find out that human nature is always going to prevail. It's just the way that it is. That person who is telling you about their side of the story is always going to tell it from a a self-preservation mode. I, I understand that. Uh, I'm not saying that's wrong, I'm just saying that's human nature, and that's what we do. I mean, we can talk about the, uh, we can talk about the principles of the Word of God and how much we love the Lord uh, all of our lives, but when it comes, push comes to shove in most Christians' lives, it's them first and everybody else second. So, it's a thing where that's just a human nature concept, and... Uh, They will always tell it, like I said, from a, from a self-preservation mode. And there are exceptions to that. I've met people who uh, were very honest about things and they, they, they laid it out the way that it was, but you don't find those kind of folks very often. You know, in dealing with any issue where two people are involved, uh, you just, one of the things you always want to remember is you just never take sides. You never take sides. You keep your emotions out of it. And you realize that, uh, you know, that you're in a position where you can't allow your emotions to get involved in it. And it's something that you just can't take aside one side or the other uh, when somebody, uh, when two people have a problem. Too many times in dealing with, you know, marital problems, it's a he says, she says. And you can get caught up in that. And very frankly, some people will try to draw you into that. And um, I was on the phone last week several times with a guy who is just a—I don't even know—have a good adjective for him, but he's—he's he, just—he's just a real piece of work. And uh, he's going through some uh, problems with a gal, and uh, you know, and he consistently just keeps keep calling me. And uh, his whole purpose, his whole purpose, he doesn't want to fix one problem that he has. His whole purpose in telling me his side of the story is one thing, and that is to draw me in to get me to take his side against the woman. And uh, it, it's all that it is. It's a thing where uh, you know, the, the people will do that. They'll, they'll try to bring you in, draw you in for you to support them or to give them credibility in what they want to do. Many times they'll draw you in to want to use you to get you to do something for the other person that the other person I- I- it won't do. And in dealing with any issue, as I said, you keep your emotions out of it. You'll be smarter than the problem. And you just never take any sides in it. What you do is you work with and lay out the principles that govern any given situation and let the principles uh, be the deciding factor. To give you an example on this, this guy last week, he was telling me uh, in, in whatever their legal situation was of going through whatever they're going through, he was telling me all the things that she was doing that violated the agreement. All the things that she was doing that just violated everything that the judge had said needed to be done, and you know and he laid that out to me, and I said to him back i said i 'm not sure why you 're telling me this first of all, i can 't fix it i 'm not the judge. My advice to you is this: If this lady has done everything that you she said she 's done, put her in jail. I mean, go to the authorities, go to the judge, go to the courts, let them deal with it. And, of course, when you start talking like that, then you don't go anywhere with it because of the fact that that's not what he wants. He wants to draw you in. People will want to draw you into their circumstances and their problems. And you simply lay out the principle that govern any given situation, and then you let the principles decide the factor. When we started our people ministry a couple of years ago, I started out with probably the single greatest principle that I use uh, in dealing with people uh, when you don't know what the situation really is. And that is what I call, out of 1 Kings chapter 3, the Solomon principle. And I've told you the story before, how Solomon is king. He's the wisest man that ever lived. And two women come into him uh, with one baby. And they both claim that it's his baby, that their baby, and the other one's baby died, and then the other one stole the baby. And Solomon doesn't know these women from Adam. He doesn't know anything about them. And he's faced with a situation that you'll find yourself in many, many times in dealing with people with problems. You don't know who's telling you the truth. You don't know who's giving you the real story. I've told you earlier that when people, uh, Start to tell you what's going on in their world in any given situation. Human nature is always going to dictate that they're going to do it from their perspective. I understand that. I get that going in. How do you come to the place where you, you, you find out something like that? Well, Solomon was a genius in what he did. Here's the two women. Bible says they're both harlots. They both got some character problems. They have a baby. One of them's telling the truth. One of them's lying. It's, it's a she says, she says here. One says, it's my baby. The other one says, no, it's my baby. Her baby died last night. She took my baby from me while I was sleeping, vice versa. Solomon doesn't know. Solomon's answer was a classic. He calls somebody to get a sword. And then he brings that sword and he says, let's cut the baby in half and you can have half and you can have the other half. Immediately when he did that, the true mother came forward and said, Oh, I'm not going to let that happen. Go ahead. I'd rather her have the baby and it be alive than me uh, to have that baby die. The other woman said, Go ahead and cut it in half. I don't care. Immediately, Solomon knew who was telling the truth. The point of that great story is the fact the, the deciding factor was the sword. When the sword showed up, it revealed the truth. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is a sharp, two edged sword. And when you find yourself in a situation that you don't know who's telling you the truth, when you find yourself in a situation where you're dealing with two situations that you don't know what the bottom line is, put them under the sword. Let the Bible principles dictate to you what's right and what's wrong. It's just that simple. And, uh, you know, in dealing with marital situations, and you'll deal with those a lot, there's always some things that you look for. Uh, When you get a little more understanding about dealing with people's problems, you'll realize that in any real scenario, any real situation, no matter what it may be, there'll be certain things that you'll want to look for. There are certain things that are undeniable. There are certain things that are right there. There are certain things that when you learn to look for them, it will help you determine The honesty of somebody who's telling you what they're telling you. And when I get into a a situation where it's a husband and wife, I look for some things. I won't tell them I'm looking for some things. I'll listen to what they say. I'll watch what they do. I'll listen to both of them as they lay out their perspective on where the situation is. But there's some things that I will look for. There's some things that I will look for within the wife. There's some things that I will look for within the husband. Uh, there's some things in, in, that I will, in any marriage, that when you start to work through some problems, that you'll want to look for. You'll want to see. And learning that is invaluable. When two Christians have an issue, uh, uh, you know, and two people come in and they're struggling with something, and they're at odds with each other, there's things that I look for. There's things that I look for. It may be a legitimate problem. It may not be a legitimate problem. How do you determine that? There's things you look for. And when you learn the Bible and the Bible principles, the Bible lays out all the scenarios that a person can get into. Once you get those down and understand those, then you simply look for some things that, that, are, uh, that are the real deal. Uh, when, a, uh, when you deal with a person by themselves. Here again, somebody comes into me, whether it's a young guy or a young gal or mom or dad or whatever, somebody come in on their own, and they have some issues. There's things that I look for. There's things that I look for. And, you know, in human nature, human nature follows patterns. And to keep us from falling into Proverbs, the verse here of, of making a statement before you hear the whole matter, and then looking like a fool, is to simply understand that that there's some things that you look for. There's some things that you always want to look for in dealing with people. Every situation will come with a story. I've never seen it any. Every situation will come in with a story. You know, most of you know that I uh, have a... I like to collect World War II memorabilia. And... uh, I've always, Those of you who have been to the veterans things, and I like the uniforms, and I like to get them into groupings where they come with, with everything that uh, the guy had. But I really, 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 really like helmets, especially the ones that were painted by the, by the units. They didn't do it a lot, and they're kind of a rare deal. Uh, and to find a, a legitimate uh, painted helmet uh, is, a, is a pretty hard thing to find. Honestly, everybody remembers the movie Saving Private Ryan. Everybody remo- re- remembers the movie or the, the miniseries The Band of Brothers. Uh, those two movies did more for the collecting world uh, than um, than you could ever imagine. You know, uh, in The Band of Brothers, it was the build around the e- 101st Airborne, but it was Easy Company of the 506. The 101st Airborne had three main infantry parachute. They had the 506, they had the 502nd, and they had the 501st. Every one of them had different stencils on their helmet. For whatever reason, they decided to do playing card, you know, club, you know, like the spades or whatever on it. And in the 506, uh, they 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 put a, they put the spade on there of a of a playing card. And Before Band of Brothers, if you would go to a military show and there would be a real honest-to-goodness, honest-to-goodness, real 506 helmet painted there, jump helmet, you'd probably buy it for $20, $30. Since Band of Brothers and Private Ryan, and Private Ryan was built around the 101st too, and also the 4th Ranger Division, Since Saving Pratt Ryan and and, uh, Band of Brothers, the last one I saw that was real, that sold in an auction, sold for $35,000. Now that is a markup. (laughs) Overnight, they went crazy. Everything went nuts. Where now you could buy a grouping for, you know, $10, or somebody would say, take it. Now, oh man, you're talking, you're talking some money and some of those things, unless you find it right. And you know as well as I do, wherever there's money to be made legitimately, there's money to be made illegitimately. And when that thing came out and those helmets started going for big bucks, every faker in the world started faking them. And I want to tell you something, they faked them good. I mean, they fake them good. There are so many tricks that these guys have learned uh, to age these helmets to make them look like they're 80 years old. I mean, they'll paint them up and throw them on top of a barn for, you know, who knows how long and, and, uh, and let, them, let them corrode and, and try to pick up the deal. They'll use chemicals to age them. They'll put them in ovens with certain chemicals on that'll turn it like it's old and rust. And in the collecting world, There's a rule you follow. Because every helmet, every helmet came with a story. I heard so many stories that this helmet was found in a barn in Normandy. Or St. Mary Or this helmet came right out, the phrase in the collecting world is the woodwork. Meaning to come out of somebody's house. This helmet belonged to a vet. I've seen them put names in it. I've seen them put names in it. The guys that died and put a bullet hole in it, like this is the helmet that the guy was wearing when he was killed. And I'll tell you, the rule of thumb in collecting world is, buy the helmet, don't buy the story. Because everything's got a story. In buying a helmet, there's things that you look for that tells you that's legit. There are some things, folks, no matter how good you are, there are some things you can't fake. And as good as they may look to a novice, you can't fake 70, 80 years of age. You just can't. I mean, you can't put the things in it. You can't put the, you know, a lot of, some of the little secrets that you 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 look at as you get your little magnifier and when the stencil is painted on, you look at it under about 30, 40 X and you see down inside that paint there's a little there's a little little splinter cracks in it from age. A new paint won't do that. Obviously one of the one of the key things was is back then they used lead-based paint. So they got guys now that, uh, they got guys now that uh, uh, that uh, will test your helmet for you to see if the paint is modern-day paint or lead-based paint. That never did much for me because I know a guy in Nebraska who's a professional painter and he is great at faking helmets. And he probably has 9,000 gallons of paint that is World War II era that, that is lead-based. I mean, it's, the tricks are out there. And one of the things that you learned is you never buy the story because you buy the helmet. You look for the legitimacy of what that piece really represents. And in dealing with people, you never buy the story. You look for the legitimacy of what a situation has. When you learn to do that, when you learn to look beyond the story, because stories will, I mean, stories pull your emotions. I mean, if you're at a military show someplace and a guy says, hey, that guy over here in this table has got a, got a helmet that came right out of the barn in Normandy, man, I mean, he's got the guy's paperwork, he's got the... Man, your heart beating a thousand, you're there. I've seen some of the best fakes you ever saw in your life. And when it deals with dealing with people and circumstances and situations, I've seen some of the best face you'll ever see in your life. And you learn. Because people will try to tell you the story to get your emotions involved. And once your emotions are involved, you know, you're vulnerable. So you stay with the principles. You never buy the story. You always look for what is legitimate within any given situation. Once you understand what that is. And that's the key. You know, you, you hear, uh, you, uh, you, when, you, when you hear a matter, you you listen to it, both sides, and then you answer it according to the principles of the Word of God. And the key to dealing with people and helping them is to keep yourself from getting, getting uh, you know, uh, getting drawn into the situation. And it, it goes without saying that just human nature will do that. And now I get it, and you've got to remember this. You can't see the heart of that person. I never try to judge a person's heart. I always try to give a person the benefit of the doubt. I think that that's, as a Christian, what we ought to do until that person proves otherwise. But I think that, uh, you know, uh, I, honestly, I can't see a person's heart. But here's the key. God can. And God will reveal the, what the heart is through the Word of God. Uh, it's just, it's an incredible principle. I'll tell you a story. As I was a young guy in the ministry. Let me tell you the story about the day I shot my white horse. When I was young, I thought as a young pastor, my job was to ride in on my white horse and solve every problem. There would be situations that somebody would have, and and I'd get the phone call, and immediately I'd go out to the back of the church where the stables were. I'd saddle up that mighty steed of mine, and uh, I'd jump on the back and ride off into the problem. And I found out very quickly that uh, that was the worst thing that you could do. You ride in there thinking that you, somebody on the phone, well, he's doing this or she's doing this. That's all you hear. And you're so naive with it all that you think, I'll, I, I know what the problem is. So you mount up on that horse, you go galloping down the road, pull into the front yard, it on the fence post, jump into the house, and you look like a fool. Because there's two sides to every story. I learned that after about the first six months of dealing with people. One day, I took that horse out and put a bullet right between his eyes. He's long dead. No more white horse riding for me until the one comes in Revelation chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 8, uh, 9, and 10, down through 12, really, is a great set of principles. It says, it goes along with what we're looking at. It says, go not forth hastily. To strive lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof when thy neighbor hath put thee to shame. There's somebody running in thinking you've got all the answers when you don't. and you look like a fool. Debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself. Don't take go take what somebody else tells you. Find out for yourself and discover not a secret to another. Lest he that heareth it put thee to shame, and thine infamy turn not away. Now, the word infamy infamy is like your your reputation. Your reputation gets shot. You come jumping in and shoot your mouth off before you get all the facts. Then in verse 11 and 12, it turns back toward the word of God and what we should do. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon a obedient ear. Now, you see that? An obedient ear. An obedient ear is an ear that is trained to listen and to look for some right things. How many times in the Bible does the Bible say, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And uh, the key is a wise reprover uh, upon an obedient ear. Understanding that your obedience to your listening is based on the principles of the Word of God. It's a great verse. It's a great verse. Five simple steps. Number one, get the facts before you respond. Don't just go running in there and jumping in because the person's your friend or you think they wouldn't tell you the truth. I've already told you, friend or not, people will always tell the story based on their own self-preservation in any situation. That's just human nature. Go to the person directly. You got a problem with somebody, go to that person directly and deal with it. Don't go on hearsay. Somebody said, there have been people, in my life there have been people that come to me and said, you know that so-and-so said this about you. And before I make my judgment on where I'm at or what I'm at, I will call that person up or go to that person, hey, so-and-so. And and I will ask the person, do you mind if I go ask so-and-so if that's true or I can fix it? If the person says says no, then I say, well, then why did you tell me? Why did you put me in a situation that you're not giving me the liberty to do what's right with? And I'll deal with them. If they say, yeah, go ahead, which most of the time they do, then I'll go to that person. And I'll simply say, hey, look, did I screw something up here? So-and-so says, you got a problem with me. So-and-so says that I did something. If I did, I want to make it right because the number one thing in all the world is for God's people to get along. And if I screwed up, I'll be the first one to tell you I screwed up. And and you got to do that. You got to be able to do that. Then the next thing is this. Don't go on hearsay or what somebody what somebody tells you uh, that is not documented. I'm big on documentation. I think that documentation, would, if everybody would do it and what they say and what they do, uh, would solve 90% of the problems on the, we have in Christianity. But nobody does it. But I'm big on documentation. The next thing he says, don't, take, uh, don't talk to others about it. You know, you want to keep the loop. Uh, of issues as close as you can, without making it as big as you can. And then the fifth one is follow the biblical principles. In everything in life, you're going to find that there's rules of engagement. And you have to follow those rules. And in dealing with people with their problems, no matter what the scenario is, there's going to be a certain rules of engagement that you have to follow based on the principles of the Word of God. And when you follow those, uh, it helps you do something that most of God's people never have an ability to do. That is, pick your battles. There are some battles that you and I don't need to get involved in. There are some battles that you'll have to get involved in. But you need to know when you do and when you don't. And that comes back to the white horse deal. You know, when to shoot that sucker. Now, with that in mind, let's look at verse 14. We talked about that. Here's another great principle. This is a great one here. It says in verse 14, The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear. Now this is probably one of the greatest verses on the power of the human spirit. Uh, There's no greater force in man than his spirit that drives him onward and and sustains him. And, you know, a study of the spirit... Of an unsaved man is one of the most remarkable things that you'll ever analyze uh, and and look at and study. The spirit of man will represent his passions, it'll represent his fighting spirit, so to speak. It'll, It'll represent his will to win, it'll represent his will to survive. And you know, you see a football game. You see the difference in in football players or any sport player, but especially football. The guy who gets tackled and he's got five guys on him, but he gets an extra five yards, dragging him with him. Where well, the other guy gets hit and he goes down. You see the quarterback who doesn't want to get hurt, so the ball play goes apart and he's being he's being charged. He just he 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 falls down, so he doesn't get killed. I get it. But you got the other guy that when he sees the crowd coming, he still wants to make the play. He'll do everything he can do. And in the midst of getting clobbered by four guys, he'll let that ball go and somebody will catch it first down. He's in the hospital the rest of his life, but he won the ball game. That's man's spirit. The spirit of man, the Bible says, will sustain his affirmity. I'll, I, in this next section here, uh, verse 14, I, I want to talk about the spirit of man uh, in two aspects. I want to look at the spirit of man in an unsaved man. And then I want to look at the spirit of man in a saved man. And this is one of the great insights into what unsaved man can accomplish. This kind of stuff is invaluable in figuring out why people do what they do. How they do it. And it's the key to understanding the human spirit uh, that's in man. You know, and we just don't think about it. But you see... Uh, there, his, a man's spirit or a woman's spirit at work in almost everything that you can see and read in, in the world today you see it in great leaders you see it in great presidents you see it in common ordinary people who rise above uh, terrible circumstances somebody said one time that uh, uh, there are no heroes but just men who rise above uh, the ordinary to accomplish great things in an hour of need and that is so true, and uh, I think it was William Halsey that said that. And that is so true, because it's the, but it's the spirit of man that does that. And history, history is a record of the spirit of man to carry him uh, to great endeavors. I, I've always enjoyed in my own personal life. I've always enjoyed reading about men who were faced with great, great trials and great obstacles, and how they overcame them. Uh, many times in a, in a military combat situation, many times in just life itself. I think that you learn a lot about yourself. I learn a lot about uh, circumstances that people go through. And I think that when you read those accounts, you get a better understanding and appreciation of, of uh, what the, man, uh, the spirit in man, man's human spirit does for him in an unsafe state. You know, back in 1927, there was a guy by the name of Charles Lindbergh. Most people don't know who Charles Lindbergh is today. They think he probably was the guy that developed cheese. That's not true. Lindbergh cheese. Charles Lindbergh was an early aviator. And back in 1927, airplanes were still in its infancy. There wasn't a lot of jets. There wasn't a lot of good planes. And uh, men were just now taking long flights across the United States. Somebody put out a record uh, and a reward for the first man that would fly across the Atlantic from New York to Paris. Lots of guys tried it, and they all got killed. Charles Lindbergh was a young guy about in his 20s, and he he wanted to attempt to cross the Atlantic by himself. An incredible feat. I mean, it would be hard enough with two pilots that could switch off. We're talking about three days without sleep, three days without landing, three days without anything to cross from New York to Paris. Almost an unbelievable, impossible deal. And yet Charles Lindbergh accomplished that feat. His plane, his plane was the embodiment of what I'm talking about today. Because the name of his plane, and it's in the Smithsonian Institute in the aeronautical section, but the name of his plane was the Spirit of St. Louis. And he caught in that plane, his endeavor, that it was the Spirit in himself that drove him that nobody else could do what he did. But he had a drive. You ought to read the account how he falls asleep and he almost crashes into the Atlantic Ocean. He's so tired. And not only did he have to go two or three days without sleep, but he was so keyed up before he ever took off that he couldn't sleep the night before. So literally four days without any sleep. And yet he landed in Paris. When he got to Paris at Le Bourget Field, he was so worn out and fatigued from the stress of flying and no sleep, he couldn't even land a plane without almost cracking it up. He was that far out of whack with, with all the stress and all the fatigue that he had felt. But it was his spirit that got him through. The spirit of man in an unsaved man is just absolutely incredible. I remember as a young kid, I used to read all the stories uh, that I could find. I remember I was in the, uh, I must have been in the 6th or 7th grade. And we had then what we called reading lab. We probably don't even have reading labs today. But we have reading labs where you would go in, and you could go through all of these different things, and you could find short stories, and you would read them. I always was a reader. I loved to read. And uh, I'll never forget, I was always picking out the ones that had to do with World War II, even back then. And I found a story based on a a bomber called the Lady Be Good. The Lady Be Good was a B-24 bomber. And in 1943, it took off from Benghazi, and flew to Naples on a bombing run. Coming back, it disappeared, and <clears throat> nobody ever nobody ever heard what happened to it. it. It was it was just disappeared. 14 years later, 14 years later, in 1958, a oil petroleum crew in the Libyan desert. Was looking for places to put oil wells and they came across a B 424 bomber that was almost perfectly intact. It was incredible. They went inside, there was still coffee drinkable. This is like 14 or 15 years. Coffee was still drinkable, sandwiches were still there. One of the guys went back and f- pressed the trigger on one of the 50 cal machine guns and it fired. The radio still worked. That plane just looked like it landed on its stomach in the middle of the desert. Everything was there. Everything worked. Everything was intact. But no crew. One of the greatest mysteries that ever, ever, ever came into it. They brought the Air Force out. The Air Force out, did an investigation. They, they couldn't figure anything out. And they, uh, they went back, and it was about four years later that that same British crew found the first body. Then they found another body. Then they found a little camp with four or five bodies in it. All skeletons at this point in time. And one by one, the story of the Lady Be Good came to be known. And you can Google it on your... On, it the whole thing there on the internet. What happened was this, that they were on their way flying back from the raid in Naples. And they got lost. And they thought they were flying to their base, but actually they had flown over their base and were flying away from their base. They were almost out of gas. It was nighttime. They thought they were over the Mediterranean Sea. Little did they know that they had flown into the Libyan Desert, some 300 miles beyond where they thought they were. And uh, they all bailed out before the plane ran out of gas. From what they found and what they, in and the, and the uh, uh, log books and the uh, diaries that they found, uh, they actually thought they were over water. What a surprise that must have been when they hit the Libyan desert. That B-24, the Lady Be Good, just sauntered on for 20, 30 miles, a completely run out of gas, and then just bellied in on the desert, and there it was. Those guys got together. They were confused completely where they were. They had no idea... And it's a thing where that they, they finally got together and they started to put it together. They had two canteens of water, four candy bars, half a sandwich that somebody had in his flight suit. And that's all the rations that they had in the middle of the desert, where it's 130 degrees in the day and 22 degrees cold at night. They started to walk out of the desert. They thought that they were closer than they really were. The closest way out was 200 miles. When they finally found every one of those guys, and they never found the last guy. He got into the sand dunes looking for help. Some of them could only go so far, and that's where they died. The little camp that they found had four or five guys in it. One of the guys, D.P. Hayes, was right from Independence, Missouri. He's buried over here, and I went to his grave. He's buried over in Independence. Two guys were, two or three guys were left and they struck out on their own. They found those two bodies, they never found the other one. They were there, it took them two weeks to die. In the most extenuating, heat, cold situation with no food. Each one of them got a canteen cup, drink a day of water. They had no food after the first day, second day. How do you ration that kind of stuff? And yet, when they found the last body, that they didn't find the final one. That last guy that they did find had went ninety miles on foot. Ninety miles. The human spirit. The human spirit. I remember reading the story of of early in World War II when uh, when the Japanese were were just taking over all of the Pacific. And I remember the I remember the the, the fall of Bataan. Reading about it. And uh, the Japanese were merciless. They looked at people who surrendered less than human because their Bashito code, uh, you didn't surrender. And so all these Americans had surrendered. They treated them so brutally, it was unbelievable. They marched them in the heat 80 miles to a prisoner camp that became known as the Bataan Death March. I've seen pictures of soldiers walking along that trail actually with so dysentery so bad that they're actually carrying their intestines in their hands. If they stopped to get a drink, they were bayoneted. If they stopped, they were too tired and fell down, they were shot or bayoneted. It was the most horrendous thing that you ever saw in your life. And yet today, those men, the survivors of it, Many of them had died by natural age by now, but for years and years it is there was hundreds of them that met every year for a reunion. I went to one of the reunions in Kansas City. The survivors of the Bataan death mark. The human spirit. The human spirit will get you through when other things will not get you through. It's an incredible concept. You had an uncle or somebody that was on the USS Indianapolis, didn't you? What was it, an uncle? Missy's grandfather, great uncle. great uncle, USS Indianapolis, 1945. It was a secret mission that it carried the atomic bomb to Tinian that was going to be dropped on Hiroshima. It was such a secret mission that nobody knew anything about the ship, and the ship had dropped the atomic bomb off at of Tinian was making its way back when a Japanese uh, submarine torpedoed it. Third, it sunk in like nine minutes. 1,400 men went into the ocean. Navy didn't even know they were missing. They weren't even missing for, 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 for a week and a half. For a week and a half, those men stayed in that hot during the day, cold at night. Not, you know, many of them not having life jackets on. Not enough life raft for everybody. Most of them just treading water. 1,400 men came out. And after two weeks, when that first PBY, that was searching for him, came over and and landed and began to pick him up. Out of 1,400 men, less than 200 survived. Sharks took the rest. I've read those stories, boy, those old boys that were in that water praying. I've read those stories when old boys were there praying, oh God, get me out of this. They were talking about the fact that they were there in a little life where they're holding on to each other trying to stay afloat and the shark would come and take this one. Shark would come back and take this one. You're in the middle of the night you can't see anything under you. You could Any moment of time, you could feel those jaws clench down and pull you under. Do you understand what kind of endurance that would take? Human spirit, man. Human spirit's an incredible thing. It really is. You ought to read the book sometime called Enemy at the Gates. It's about the Battle of Stalingrad, 1943. Stalingrad's in Russia. The Germans had tried to take Russia, and they had gotten all the way into Stalingrad and had taken the city. When the Russians counter counter counterattacked, and uh, the German general was a guy by the name of von Paulus. He was in the German 6th Army. That's who was in Stalingrad. And the German 6th Army got completely circled by, by, the, by the Russian. Massive counterattack. And uh, Stalingrad fell. 500,000 500, German troops from the 6th Army went into captivity into Russia. 15 years later, when they came back, 5,000 came back. Everybody else died in those camps. It tells you in the book how that, uh, what they went through. The cannibalism, that they, they ate the dead people. I don't mean to be gross today, and I know we got kids here today, but you know how they survived the human spirit? They took, they would feed them some food, barley, corn. And they were so hungry that they had a detail that, that collected all the human waste. that came out of the human beings, you know? And then had groups that went through and picked out the individual ears of corn that did not be digested, washed them off, and that's what they had to eat. The human spirit. The human spirit. Incredible. What man will do to survive. It's incredible. It's incredible. We saw the movie Unbroken. We all went to see it, but Lewis, whatever his name was, and how he survived. There's one out right now called Ridge, was by, by the name of, I read his life story years ago, Desmond Dross, who was a conscientious objector, who was single-handling in Okinawa with the 7th Army, saved 75 guys as a medic. Incredible! Incredible! We've all seen the movie Rudy, a guy who's 110-nothing and has no speck of, of, of athletic ability, nothing. He in with the hangs in with the greatest football team in the land, Notre Dame, and, and uh, the, the spirit, I mean they beat him senseless. Human spirit. I remember the soccer team that crashed land in the Andes Mountain. Remember that back in the early 60s? Nobody ever knew where they were, finally found them, but they didn't have nothing to eat, wound up eating their dead, eating their dead to survive. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. But I'm gonna tell you something the spirit of man is his greatest driving force to keep him alive when nothing else will. It's just that simple. The spirit of man is his ability to survive in the most horrendous circumstances. Lost in the days in the wilderness for days. The Holocaust survivors. If you get Netflix, there's a in a documentary section, there's one you ought to watch called Treblinka. It's about the concentration camp in in Poland, in Treblinka. One of the most sobering things you have ever seen in your life of how these people had to suffer. This old guy who's now, he's probably be dead by this time, because I think it was done a, probably 10 or 12 years ago. But he's talking the story how that that he, he was put into Treblinka. And he, 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 he picks up the clothes after all, of, of the bodies once they sent him into the gas chamber. And he, he, he's talking about, you know, he's already uh, fearing any day you're going to die. I mean, you have you, you, you only have this second. Only have this moment. And he's talking about picking up all the clothes and gathering them up. And he, he walks over and he picks up and he looks down. And there he recognizes the coat of his older sister and his younger sister that had just went into the gas chamber. And he's picking the clothes up. Can you imagine that? nothing you can do about it, nobody you can talk to about it, nobody that you can reach out to, sometimes in an unsaved man, his spirit is all he has to get him through, to survive. Now let's look at the second aspect of man's spirit in relationship to a saved man. Now we know that as a saved man, we are a body, soul, and spirit. We're complete. The body, defined in Luke chapter 16, is what you're all looking at and you've you're got here today that we're all looking at. You're looking at mine, I'm looking at yours. The soul is unique only to man because God gave man a soul, made him a soul, so at some point in time when God would separate that soul from the flesh, God could fellowship with us through that soul. It's the spiritual body within your physical body. Then you have your spirit. And before you're saved, you have a human spirit. It's a dead spirit as far as it comes to God's concern. It can't recognize the things of God, can't fellowship with God, can't understand the things of God. The Bible says the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. But that spirit represents and defined in the Bible as, as the mind of man. It'll be man's will. It'll be man's drive. It'll be man's passion. It'll be his, it'll be his, uh, his emotions. Uh, it, it'll be his free will and his ability to choose. Now, let me give you the verses in the Bible very quickly here on, on the spirit, so you have them all that you can put them into your Bible. First of all, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, 1, that God is the father of spirits. All spirits come from him spirits in the when a man gets a spirit in the Bible, the Bible calls it in Genesis chapter 2, 7, the breath of life. That's what gives man his life, even an unsaved man. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 7 says that when a man dies, that that spirit that God gave him, the life goes back to God. shaved or unsaved. In other words, when God gave man a spirit, and initially it was to give man life, physical life. But then God uses that spirit, and I'll show you in a minute, for something else as time goes on. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, says that man's spirit is his mind. So, you're told in the Bible that, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.16, that we have the mind of Christ, that we're to get instructions from it. Philippians 2.5 says that we're to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, when you take man's mind and couple it with the mind of God, then you begin to have some things in your life that you need to have. Based on that, Romans chapter 8 verse 16 says, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Primary primary function of the Holy Spirit of God after we're saved is to bear out the fact that we belong to God. 1 John chapter 3 verse 20 talks about if our hearts condemn us. And sometimes our heart does. Sometimes we doubt ourselves. I've had people all my life think that they can lose their salvation. That's their own heart condemning them. The Bible says, if your own hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. And he knows all things because of Romans chapter 8, verse 16. He's the spirit that searches the hearts of man, a mind of man, and then becomes bears witness with your spirit that you are child of God. Job chapter 26, verse 1 through 4 talks about the four spirits that are on this earth. And it asks the question, whose spirit came from you? Animal has a spirit. That doesn't affect you and me. But then you have man's human spirit, which you all have. Then you have an unclean spirit, which is the devil. And you have the Holy Spirit, which is God. Those two will affect man's spirit. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 2, and 3 says that when you don't align your spirit with God's spirit, then you vex your own spirit with the things of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 tells us that our, uh, our spirit is not saved. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says that our spirit... When the rapture takes place, that's when our spirit gets saved, when it becomes one with God's Holy Spirit and complete. When a person vexes their spirit, they have no rule over their own spirit, Proverbs 25, 28, our famous verse, and now they're mostly a basket case, and they're like a city broken down without walls. Now, where an unsaved man will get through life based on his own spirit, as I gave you the examples, and very clearly and graphically, at many times he will survive... Many times we focus on that, but we've got to ask ourselves the question, what is the point if you survive all the things that you go through as an unsaved man and then die and go to hell? Amen. What's your point? There is no point. But the saved man, on the other hand, now has the ability to align his spirit after he's saved up to God's spirit and through the Word of God, the mind of Christ, get the right answer to everything and make the right choice And get uh, through anything he has to face. It's no more just his spirit, it's God's spirit and his spirit now with a purpose. Where an unsaved man does what he does for his own purpose and he survives. The child of God lines his spirit up with God's spirit for God's purpose and he survives, but he accomplishes something with it. Man's spirit, this is very important, I said it earlier, is his free will, his ability to choose. It's basically the conduit pipe that feeds man's flesh, or for a saved person, the old nature or the new nature. Look at verse 15. The heart of the prudent getteth knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeketh knowledge. Now last week we talked about building a strong tower, didn't we? Two key things in building a strong tower. One will be the word of God, and two, what you do with your spirit. There's four openings in our heads. And we are told in, we are told in, in first Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 that the head of every man is Christ. Your head represents your, where you're going in life. Which way you're headed. Okay? It represents how you look at things. How you reason about things me, says, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not in my right mind. I, I'm, you know, I'm out of my head. You make bad choices. You have four openings in our heads. We have our eyes, have our nose. We see with our eyes, we smell with our nose. We have our ears, what we hear, and our mouth, what we take in and then what we put out. All four will affect the spirit of man and in turn will affect man's attitude about everything in life and in time, the choices that he makes. When you make your head toward Christ, then you're in good shape. When you're in charge of your own head, and you do what you want to do, then you're in not-so-good shape. When it comes to the mind of Christ and God's Spirit, it gives man the ability to live above the circumstances by making good choices and going in the right direction. When it's not... Then he makes his own choices that in many cases will lead to a wounded spirit that will in time destroy him or at least make his life miserable. Verse 14 says, but a wounded spirit who can bear? The spirit of man is like a rudder on a ship. You take a biggest aircraft carrier you could ever find or the biggest destroyer or the biggest luxury liner. If you'd pull that out of the water, you would find that it goes left and right by a rudder underneath a rudder that is much, much smaller than the ship. When they turn that rudder this way, the ship goes that way. When they turn the rudder that way, it goes this way. That ship goes in the direction it goes by somebody in the wheelhouse turning the rudder one way or the other. That rudder is your spirit. And you go in light the direction you go by which way you align your your spirit up to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. It will dictate and direct you every which way you go. It will set you on a course based on which way uh, you turn, uh, either toward the Word of God or toward the things of the world. Now, let's look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27 for a second. I want you to see the whole aspect here. We're talking about a saved man now. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now that's a great verse. Let's let's look at it. When God first touches man to bring him to salvation, the first point of contact will be man's spirit. He can't get the flesh because the flesh is totally corrupt. He can't get the he can't get the soul because the soul is tied to the flesh. So, he has to have an independent agent by which is represents man's ability to choose. So, he, like a candle, like lighting a candle, he touches that man's spirit. Bible says in Proverbs, uh, you know, in 2027, 20, if we looked at, searcheth the inward parts of the belly, the seat of man's emotions. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, "...for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." God's spirit looks deep down inside the bowels of man's emotion. God sees his failures, his fears, his anxieties, his disappointment in life. He sees the fact that no matter what he does to pretend he's okay, the emptiness inside is still there. And in the darkness of his unsaved world with all his struggles, he, God, starts by lighting that candle of man's spirit the light in our lives that will lead us to the light of the Word of God that shines in our hearts." You see, the liberals teach a version of it. As I've told you many, many times, everything that is a false doctrine is a basically a Bible doctrine that somebody screwed up. The liberals teach this. They teach that every unsaved man has the spark of God in him. And that when you fan that spark, then he comes to God. And of course, that's totally not true. The Bible says, Romans seven says, In me, that is, my flesh dwelleth no good thing. The Bible says God is light, in him is no darkness at all. God is not going to put any spark in any unsaved man until God comes down to deal with that man his way. And when he does that, he reaches down and in deep inside a man and he touches him. And he gives him just a little light. John chapter 1, verse 9 says, He that is a true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Every man and every woman ever walks this planet at some point in their life, God is going to reach down and touch them through their spirit. He's going to reveal himself to them. We get this idea, people ask all the time, what about all the people over there, not all the heathen in Africa, what about all the heathen in Kansas City? A heathen is a heathen. We get the idea because they're over there and we're over here, we have churches and they seemingly don't, That that means that handicaps God some way, like God's got to do it through a church. He's chosen to do it through a church in a church age, but God can do it any way he wants to do it. And the verse stands. Many times, because we can understand how God does it, we don't accept that God can do it. That's a dangerous position to be in. There's a lot of things that I don't understand why God does the way he does it. But I cannot deny the fact that he does it. And that's what I focus on. And when it comes to the fact that I don't understand how God lights every man, I don't. I don't know how he does it. It's not my job to know. I just thank God he lighted me and I responded to it. Amen. Amen. But it isn't my job to figure it out. I believe the verse and what it says. I know this. <clears throat> I mean, what do you think? You think while Jesus is over there at the first coming of Christ doing all of his work in the Middle, in the middle East over there to put up Christianity and get it going, what do you think happened to the rest of the world? What do you think happened to the Indians in America, North America, Central America, South America? Uh, What do you think was God not doing anything with them? Were they just out there hanging out on their own and they all died and went to hell until God got around to send the missionaries? You see, without this verse here and understanding what we're talking about here, about how God touches a man's spirit, you never figure it out. Well, I know that when the pilgrims came here and, and, uh, and, and, and began to establish their colonies, they came here uh, looking for religious freedom, preaching the Bible. And I know that uh, there was a group of Indians from uh, Oregon out there called the Natchez Pace that traveled 2,000 miles when they heard that the white men had showed up, and they showed up asking them, where was the book that talked about the son of the great God that died for us? Now, how did they get that? You see, we think the Indians are all pagan and heathen. No, the pagans and heathens are out in Kansas City. You're going to have shoulder to shoulder with them this afternoon. The truth of the matter is, and I know a lot of lore and a lot of stuff happens in history that destroys a lot of facts. I get it. But I'll tell you this. The American Indian in America, and I know there was probably bad Indians and good Indians. There's probably Indians that found God and Indians that rejected God. Say, now, how could you make that statement? Because look at the Indians that we're all around. I'm not talking about the ones in Cleveland. You have people today who reject God and, 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 and accept God. I'll tell you this. Some of those Indians back there, they worship the great white father. Now, that may not be as biblical as you would say and preach in a church, but you go over to Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, and you'll find the great white father. Amen. They reverence the great spirit. See we just all think that's pagan. Well I'll tell you this, pagan or not, when